night. And so I'm going to try to, uh, probably, I'm probably going to slaughter this, but let's try it. Um, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord, so the Lord will repay him for all his deeds. Is that right? Pardon me? According to his deeds, right? And then, um, beware of him yourself, for he has opposed, strongly opposed our message. Is that right? Okay, good. Um, trying to get through all of chapter four, memorize all of chapter four, but sometimes when you do that, you get a little hung up on silly things. You memorize all the doctrinal stuff, and then it's the names and everything that throw you off. Second Timothy chapter four, fourteen and fifteen. If you're a Christian long enough, you're going to have the experience. You will have had it already of having someone oppose your ministry and the gospel to the degree that the only way to describe their opposition is evil. That's the only word you can use to describe it. False accusations calculated to destroy you and your family are part of living the, the Christian life, and it's part of living the life of ministry. Um, but there is comfort in this text, and the comfort is is that the Lord knows the evil that's done to his people. He knows about it, and he will take care of it in the end. I hope it is some encouragement if you've been through it already. Uh, I've been dealing with some stuff the last two or three weeks like this, and it's remarkable to me how the Lord sovereignly brings me to this text this Sunday, or this Sunday, this Wednesday night. And, um, and I'm calling this message, The Metal Worker's Evil Deeds. The Metal Worker's Evil Deeds. In the text in 14 and 15, there are three warnings. So the first warning is that the enemies of God reveal their hearts. Eventually, enemies of God can pretend that they are your friends. They can pretend that they're with you and they support you. But eventually, they will reveal their hearts. It will happen. You can't um, keep suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and not have it at some point manifest itself. It's like trying to hold a basketball down in the water when you're in a swimming pool, right? The more you push down on the basketball, what happens? It's pushing back at you, right? And if you lose your grip on it, it's going to pop you right in the face because you're suppressing that basketball. Well, there's evil people that pretend to be part of the gospel ministry, and they're suppressing the truth, and they're holding that down, but eventually it will pop up. Eventually, their hearts will be revealed. And that's exactly what you see here, this example of Alexander the coppersmith, because the first part of verse 14 says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. And so we're going to look at several characteristics of Alexander, this coppersmith. First thing that we know about him is that he worked with metal. Uh, we're getting that from the term coppersmith. It's translated in the different translations as metal worker, blacksmith, brass founder, or just smith. So you say, what in the world? It says coppersmith in the ESV, but you're talking about brass founder or metal worker or blacksmith? Sounds like iron. Why? What's the deal? What's going on there? Well, in classical Greek, this term referred to any worker in metal. It didn't necessarily really have to be copper. It often involved the making of idols, according to Bauer in his lexicon. Now, if you remember, well, we don't need to turn there, but in Acts chapter 19, in verses 23 through 41, there was that 
thing that happened there in Ephesus. Remember? Demetrius, he was a silversmith. And the Apostle Paul's there in Ephesus, by the way. That's the same place that Timothy would be. And this silversmith uh, causes a huge riot in Ephesus because the gospel's being preached and people are turning away from their idols. Well, that's not good for business if you are a silversmith because you're creating these uh, idols. Diana of the Ephesians is what's mentioned there in, that, in Acts chapter 19. And they end up dragging, dragging people into the, into the arena and they're crying out, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And it's all started because of this issue that when the gospel is preached, it destroys these idols. So that's, that was what was going on there. Now, since copper was the first metal used in Greece, this Greek term became the word for metal in general, and they would apply it to metals like tin and iron and all kinds of things. So that's why it can be translated coppersmith, if you go very literally, but it usually just meant metal worker. His opposition to Paul is probably very much like Demetrius's opposition back there in Acts chapter 19, because Christianity can be bad for business. Christianity can be bad for business. And when Christianity is bad for business, you can expect all kinds of opposition. So you can expect it like if you're at an abortion clinic and you're stopping people from going in to murder their babies, you can bet that if the doctor or the abortionist is being paid anywhere from $700 to $1,500, depending on how late the baby is, that they will do things like call the police and claim that you're blocking the driveway or, you know, say that you're, you know, like physically attacking people and all kinds of things. And I've had all of that happen when you're at an abortion clinic. That's why we film everything that we do when we go to abortion clinics so that we have the evidence to prove that, no, they're liars. And so um, that's the way that it goes. We, years ago, in like 2006, our ministry would go down to Fort Worth, down to Sundance Square, and we would preach down there every Friday and Saturday night. And so about 2006, our ministry got a letter from the Fort Worth Chamber of Commerce. And they said, the Fort Worth Chamber of Commerce got together and said, would you guys stop coming out on Friday and Saturday nights to preach because it's scaring people away. And it was the bars that were upset. Because when you go out and you preach the gospel out in front of a bar and people are feeling convicted, what do they do? They go home. They go home. The same thing happened in Dallas and in, uh, yeah, the West End when Jeff Rose and his team was the same time, about 2006. They were going out there and preaching and the bars in the West End were upset because people were going home. Because the power of God, the word of God is being proclaimed and people left. Praise God, right? That's a good thing. And so I hope he does it again, right? And wouldn't it be something if that happened in the stockyards? So it, it can happen. The power of the gospel is like that. And when it's bad for business, there's going to be opposition. And so that's probably part of, at least part, of what's going on with Alexander the coppersmith. Now I'm saying that they reveal their hearts because of the word did in the text. Now it doesn't sound like much, but... His actions are revealing his heart because it says, he did me great harm. That word did means revealed or manifested. It's translated display by Arthur S. Way. It's translated manifested 
by the centenary translation. The term in the Greek is used 11 times in the New Testament, but 10 of those 11 times in the English are translated with a word like show or manifest. This is the only place in the English Bibles where it's translated did. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I'm not a great Greek scholar, but if I'm looking at 11 examples and 10 of them are show, I'm going to think that, well, maybe it ought to be translated manifested or did, or, you know, instead of did. Um, and Thayer's lexicon says it means to manifest, display, or to put forth. So he did great harm. He is revealing his heart. He's manifesting great harm because this is what he really is. What you are is going to come out under pressure. You're like a sponge. You want to find out what's in the sponge? You squeeze the sponge. Whatever's in the sponge is coming out. The gospel was squeezing Alexander the coppersmith, and what came out of his what came out of his heart was this great harm. So, um, how do you translate that? So, what I'm saying about that is that the third uh, this third characteristic of Alexander is that the harm that he manifested was intense. It says great harm here in the ESV. It's been translated, hurt me very much, displayed bitter hostility, considerable ill will, did me much mischief, charged me with much evil, has done many wicked things against me. These are just a bunch of different examples of how it gets translated. In the first occurrence of this word in the New Testament, it's Matthew 21, verse 41. And it says there, they said to him, I will put those wretches to a miserable death. And the word miserable is our word that we're talking about here. And let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And so misery, right, in this translation of that word. Mark 7, verse 21, which we're getting at. For from within, out of the heart of man... Come evil thoughts. That word, those words, evil thoughts, is the Greek, same Greek word of, for harm here in this text. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Where does it come from? You can't blame it on everything else. You know, you, you can sort of do that, but the reality is your heart likes it. And so that's where all those things come from. And these evil thoughts come from within. They came from within this harm came from inside of Alexander the coppersmith. Romans chapter 2, verse 9 says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. That's the same Greek word, the Jew first and also the Greek. Tribulation and distress, talking about the judgment of God, for every human being who does evil. Evil is in the heart of man. Evil is why we have this total depravity. In classical Greek, the idea is either a moral evil, like we're used to hearing the word evil, or physical calamity. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word could also be used for divine judgment. And so let's look at this example. Go back to Deuteronomy 31, verse 17. Deuteronomy 31, verse 17. And you'll see this in this Greek translation of the Old Testament how this term was used. 
Not just moral evil, not just a calamity, but actual divine judgment from God. Deuteronomy 31, verse 17. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils, there's the ter- that's the term in, that would be translated by the same term in the Greek. Many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us? Because our God is not among us. Well, the truth is, God's actually bringing judgment in that case. And these evils that they're experiencing, these terrible judgments from God, are coming directly from him. And then Deuteronomy 31, verse 29, points that out. Because it says, For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly, and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you. Because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Again, the word evil is that same Greek term. And it's caused by disobedience, the judgment, the evils that come in judgment are caused by their own evils in their disobedience against God. So the harm that's talked about here in Second Timothy 4, that harm inflicted was evil. It wasn't like um, a small thing. It wasn't like moral neutrality. That's not going on with Alexander the coppersmith. And it's not causing just a small problem. This is a downright evil in Alexander's thoughts towards Paul. And we'll look more into that in a minute. They're evil and they come out. This evil comes out in the actions that are described in verses 14 and 15. So that is the first warning uh, that we have in the text. The second warning is in this last part of verse 14. And the warning is for Alexander, and the warning is for anyone who would oppose the gospel this way and oppose the man of God that way, is that retribution is coming. Because the text says the Lord will, re- will, will repay him according to his deeds. Retribution is coming. And there are several truths about judgment and retribution that what I want to talk about here for those who would oppose the gospel. The first truth is that sowing and reaping is an unavoidable spiritual principle. The Lord will repay. Sowing and reaping, if you, it's just natural science, right? It's botany or whatever you want to say. You take a seed and you plant it, and if it's watered and it's fertilized and it's in good soil, it's going to happen. Whatever you planted, that's what's going to come up. The same thing is unavoidable, and it's just as unavoidable in the Christian life and just life in general. If you plant certain things, that's what you're going to reap. You're going to reap what you sow, right? If you sow destruction, you're going to reap destruction. If you sow to life, you'll reap life. It's a principle that applies to absolutely everyone on this planet, Christian, non-Christian, whatever. And so for Alexander the coppersmith, Paul is saying the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. He will reap what he has sown. The word repay is translated reward, uh, pay him back by Moffat in his translation, retribution, the New English Bible, and 20th century New Testament says, give him what his actions deserve. Give him what his actions deserve. In other words, no mercy. There's going to be no mercy. The Lord will repay him according to what he has done. This is strong language 
that the Apostle Paul has for him. People aren't used to talking like this in 21st century American Christianity. You certainly don't name names. You know, I mean, it's just rude for pastors to get up and say, this person has done evil. Well, that's judgmental. Imagine him saying this today in your average megachurch. This person has done this thing, and the Lord will pay him back. He will reap what he has sown. You can't, well, you're not supposed to say that today. But I don't know. I'm looking at a biblical example of it right here. And by the way, Alexander's not the only one that he's been mentioning here in 2 Timothy 4. He's been naming Demas, right, who deserted him. He calls him out by name and says, this guy has, has wandered away from the faith. And so there is a time to name names. And sowing and reaping is an unavoidable spiritual principle. So in classical Greek, the term was used for paying a salary or a wage when it says the word repay. Uh, Thayer's lexicon says to recompense in a good or bad sense. It depends on the context. It can either mean good or bad. In fact, most examples in the New Testament of this word are positive. Even back in 2 Timothy, right in our own chapter here, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, it's used in a positive sense in verse 8 of an award, the crown of righteousness there in 2 Timothy 4, 8. That's a positive example. Here it's negative. In Revelation 22, verse 12, we have another negative example because it says, Behold, this is Jesus speaking. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay, there's our word, each one for what he has done. In Romans chapter 2, verse 6, again, on the wrath of God and judgment of God, Romans 2, verse 6 says, he will render, it's the same word, render to each one according to his works. Sowing and reaping is an unavoidable spiritual principle. Kittle's Theological Dictionary in the New Testament says about this word, the thought of retribution cannot be taken out of the message of the New Testament without destroying it. There are a lot of people in this, in the last hundred years or more that have wanted to take the idea of the wrath of God and the judgment of God and hell and all those things out of the New Testament. But if you do it, you will destroy the text and destroy the clear message of Scripture and the gospel. He's exactly right. And so we have to hold on to this. I'm urging you to hold on to this idea that judgment does indeed come for those who oppose the gospel. We should tremble for those who oppose the gospel. We should have a certain amount of fear for them. It is a good thing. It's, why, it's wisdom to have a fear of God. It's the beginning of knowledge, right? It's to fear him. It would be right for us to think a little bit, a lot more, a lot more about the fact that there are people in our lives that will be repaid according to their deeds. There are people in our lives, some of them our own children, some of them our own friends, some of them are other family members or neighbors or coworkers, even strangers on the street. They will be repaid for their deeds because God is just. What do we say to them? There's only one thing to say to them. It's the gospel. 
It's the only thing that will save them, that can rescue them from the certain judgment of God. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And so the second truth here about this judgment is that it's just. This judgment is just because it is according to his deeds, the things that he's actually done. It's a noun referring to the specific actions done that will be judged. It might actually be a quote from the Old Testament, from Psalm 62, verse 12, the second part of the verse where it says, For you will render to a man according to his works. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, makes it very, very clear that on the day of judgment, people's works will be brought out as evidence that they're not right with God. Revelation 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Now, what you're dealing with here is evidence. This is evidence in a court of law. What's the proof that they're not that they're not in the book of life? Not just the fact that they're not there, but actually what they've done. You can tell a tree by its fruit, right? You can tell a tree by its fruit. It'll be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God on that day. We have to have urgency. I I wrote a whole gospel tract on this, by the way. You remember uh, 2012, all that stuff that was going on with the Mayan calendar back there? in 2012, and I kind of started the track off like, you're worried about the year 2012 and whether or not it's going to you know, just dissolve or whatever. You need to worry about Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. Because you're going to stand before God on the day of judgment and give an account for what you've done. And that's true. We need to get a hold of some of that uh, urgency. His judgment is just. So the question sometimes comes up, and regarding, regarding this text, some the commentators love to talk about all kinds of nonsense. And one of the things that comes up in discussion of this verse, is it right to pray for this? Is it right to pray that Alexander the coppersmith will be repaid according to his deeds? So commentator H.C.G. Mole talks about it. And I think this is worth thinking about. It's possible For the sanctified human spirit, so to see the awfulness of wrongdoing and its antagonism to God is to be impelled without sin, even to cry out and pray for a just retribution. No angry clamor of a bitter personal rancor, but the voice of an angered conscience. I think he's right. It's okay to pray. When you see obvious injustices done against the gospel, where people are opposing the gospel and lying and slandering somebody in order to oppose the gospel, that it's not wrong to say, God, you need to do something about that. It's, it would be wrong for you, for you to go out and to like, try to like, bring judgment on that person. But by the same token, it's not wrong to point it out. Because he's clearly pointing it out. And the next verse, in verse 15, he's warning Timothy saying, beware of this guy. We're going to look at that in just a second. But be mindful of that. 
that I think it's right to pray when someone's opposing the gospel and doing that kind of evil against men of God, that it's right to pray that they be exposed over that and that they will be, that God will deal with them. So that brings us, to, and I'm also praying for their salvation. So I'm not just saying pray for their destruction, but pray, if I first and foremost pray for their salvation, that they will see this before it's too late. Because it is real. Everything we're talking about here is real. He does repay. So that brings us to the third warning. And that is to be alert for malicious people. Be alert for malicious people. In verse 15, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. So what we have in verse 15 are a command and we have an explanation. So the command is very clear. Avoid them. Beware of them yourself. Just another way of saying it. Avoid them. Here it's been translated, avoid him. The confraternity edition, which is like the Lutheran translation. Be very careful, Philip says. You had better be on your guard, New English Bible. Be on the watch, Bible in basic English. Be, be, know that this is happening, is what he's saying to Timothy. And stay away from this guy. He's dangerous. It's all right to warn people about people like that. It's often used in a positive, the term for beware is often used in a positive sense for guarding sound doctrine in the epistles to Timothy. In First and Second Timothy, that's a theme through both books. Guard the doctrine, keep the doctrine. This is the same uh, Greek term that's used in, I'm just going to read the references. First Timothy 5.21, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. 2 Timothy 1, verse 12 and verse 14. It's the same term that's used positively for guarding sound doctrine. Here it's used negatively to say, look, watch out for this person. So there's other examples of negative usages of this term. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. That word take care is the same term. Luke chapter 12, verse 15 is translated the same way again, take care. He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So you can have examples of this where it's like, take care about uh, lawless people in 2 Peter three seventeen. Here, be, take care, beware of Alexander the coppersmith. But Jesus even says in Luke 12, 15, take care and beware of your own desires, your own sinful desires. Remember that be on guard against covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So there is a time to avoid certain people. And those who do the next thing, um, the explanation, you do not have to pretend you're friendly to those who are trying to destroy you. Sometimes I think we think it's Christian just to, if someone's literally trying to destroy you, act like, well, you know, we're, we're just not really getting along right now. Maybe it'll get better. They're trying to destroy you. And it's okay for you not to pretend that everything is good when it's not good. Because that's exactly what Paul's saying here. He says, beware, for he strongly opposed our message. He's like, face facts. Something we don't like to do in American Christianity these days. Face facts. When someone is actually opposing you in the gospel, it's okay for you to warn people 
about that, that he strongly opposes the message. This is really interesting how this is translated, the word strongly opposed, vehemently opposed, violent in his attacks, bitter opponent, fierce opponent, bitterly hostile, violently opposed, great opponent. It's very clear from all these translations. You're not just talking about somebody who doesn't just prefer what you're doing. They are violently and actively opposing you and they're opposing the gospel. In classical Greek, the term was commonly used to describe military battles where people are killing each other. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. That's 2 Timothy 3, verse 8. Acts chapter 13, verse 8 says, But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. You've got examples here of false teachers opposing the gospel. And by the way, in all these cases, they're named. The word message here in the text is a word derived from logos and could be translated words. R.C.H. Lenski says that these words may have been official statements Paul made in court during his trial, and Alexander's opposition may have been as a witness in court. It's possible that Alexander was present at the trial and was testifying against Paul in court. And so Timothy's on his way, and he's saying, don't get near this guy. He's not trustworthy. In verse 16, you get that idea because it says in verse 16, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. So he is talking about court of law situation there in verse 16. So that's where they get this idea from. So when someone is seeking to destroy the man of God and possibly his message, it is right to name it. We don't know exactly what Alexander did exactly because Paul seems to be at least somewhat vague, but we do have, we can come up with some ideas from the text, but we don't know exactly. So I'm going to follow this example and what I'm about to say. For the last decade, last 10 years, one leader of the pro-life movement has sought to destroy me and my family. It's been happening over 10 years. About a year ago, I thought I'd reconciled with this person But in the past year, she has, on three different occasions, brought blatant false accusations against me and my friends. And now, we'll go as far as to purposefully be silent about the plight about a specific segment of the unborn because of her bitterness and anger. In the process, she denies that she's done me any wrong, even though I bring up specific examples where she has. Over the years, she's denied the biblical gospel and actively, actively fought against it even trying to silence it at the abortion clinics. Now, right now, she pretends to be the friend of abolition, even lobbying for a bill of abolition in Austin, while at the same time seeking to to destroy me quietly. I have eyewitnesses, and I have email records of all of it. And Abby Johnson is not a metal worker, but she is an enemy of the gospel, and she's made it evident that she desires to destroy me and my friends. I have tried to be patient, and for the last year I've waited. I've not said anything for three years, or for a year, and with three different occasions, she keeps doing this. 
I just find it really interesting that in God's sovereignty, we're here in this text tonight because I've been, I've been dealing with this for the last week and a half, going back and forth with her, pleading with her, trying to help her see this is insane. But she's not doing it. She's not listening. And right now, she's deceived a whole lot of people into thinking that she's an abolitionist when what she's really doing is just sneaking in and causing division. And so I decided, while I'm studying this text, I'm just going over the Greek, and I'm like, this is the situation. This is happening. And I can keep my mouth shut while she continues to deceive other people, or I'm going to say something. So I'm saying it. So I say to all my friends, I say to everyone in this church, and I say to everyone in the abolitionist world, beware of her yourself, for she strongly opposed our message. She was trying to keep people away from the gospel at the abortion clinics, telling us that we shouldn't be out there preaching the gospel at abortion clinics. I'm telling you, she's popular in the pro-life world, and she's a chameleon. She'll tell Roman Catholics that she's Roman Catholic, and she'll talk like an evangelical to the evangelicals, but she's devoutly Roman Catholic. There's no question. And she opposes the gospel. And so I'm warning all of you here that that's the reality. So when you see this stuff out there, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. I have literally been dealing with it for 10 years. I've tried to be patient. I've tried to reconcile. I've gone out of my way to do it. But it hasn't happened. And so I'm warning you, be aware of her. I know that's tough. Nobody likes naming names. But that needs to be said. Even if you say, well, what does it matter to us? Well, it matters to a lot of people. And so that's why I'm taking the opportunity right now while I'm preaching this text to bring out a living, breathing example of it. And I don't hate Abby. I've tried to share the gospel with her many, 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 many times. I sat down with her and her husband. I took them out for dinner a year ago down in Austin. I sat there and spoke with her and I pled with her. And I, I confessed everything I could think to confess that I had ever done wrong against her. And I thought we were good until things started happening, until accusations started coming. And I, I've put up with a number of them, and now I just have to say it, so I'm saying it. So that's that. That's me saying it. And I would ask you to pray for her. Pray for her salvation. Pray that the Lord will be merciful to her so that he does not have to repay her for her deeds. Pray that she will repent and that she will place her faith in Christ alone and that it will be real. Pray for that because she, is, she matters. She's a human being made in the image of God. She's got a, a, she's got a bunch of kids that all need to know Christ. She's got a wonderful husband. Pray for all of them for their salvation, okay? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we come before you. It's hard to say these things, but Lord, they have to be said. And Lord, I pray that you would protect the abolitionist movement from not just Abby, but a lot of people like her who are trying to muddy the waters and make it look like we're all saying the same thing when we're very clearly not. Lord, I pray that the gospel will always be front and center in the abolitionist world and that we will understand that it is the, the gospel is the power of God. That's the thing that's going to end abortion is the gospel. When people's hearts are changed by the truth and that they don't even want to get an abortion done. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would bring about a great work in Abby's life. Lord, that you bring her to conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I pray, oh God, that you'd be merciful and that you would give her new, a new heart with new desires. 
And Lord, I pray that we have a time where there would be true repentance and reconciliation, where we might be able to work together to end abortion instead of, instead of at cross purposes. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.